Okay, now to some good news coming from the heart of Europe, Brussels. On the 26th of January, 70,000 protesters took the street in Brussels to protest the lack of state action to tackle the climate crisis. And all those people showed up to the march despite the horrible, <laughs> I repeat, horrible mm. weather. <laughs> Belgium. Belgium, yes. But this was the first time people have gathered for this cause in Brussels, right before the commencement of the UN Climate Summit in Katowice, Poland. Over 65,000 people took the streets. And what's interesting and maybe unique about the climate marches in Belgium is that every Thursday, Belgian children and university students skip school and protest. So on the 24th of January, 35,000 children and uni students were on the streets protesting. 35,000? Right. And they vowed to miss school one day a week every Thursday until the government takes action. So a few takeaways about the climate marches. After these two big protests, I was reading the interviews done with the protesters and they were asked why they were there. Right. Right. One of them said, quote, I'm here to try to slow down climate warming and to ensure that my daughter and my baby have the best planet possible. End of quote. Another one said there is still time. And she was marching with her 15 month baby while pregnant with her second child. So they were there for their babies, their kiddos. And this reminded me what Milka said. Yeah, me too. Yeah, when we interviewed her, she said that her interest in green politics and environmental causes started because she was worried about her daughter's future. Yeah. So these messages are so personal. They're so concerned. But I think here's the catch. Even though they're worried and concerned, they're still hopeful, which is why they go out yeah. on streets. And, and this is why and how they're mobilized. And um, this made me think about, you know, we often ask ourselves how we should communicate climate change. Yeah. What's the right framing for this? Even the name itself, is it climate crisis, climate change, global warming? And what about our message in general? Mm -hmm. Is it climate fear or climate hope? Because we got to think about which one works better because the aim is to raise awareness on the issue but also to get people passionate yeah. by speaking to both their minds and to their emotions and, and to mobilize communities. Yeah, right? making them feel like it's possible, that it's urgent, but possible, which is quite a fine line to tread in your messaging. Yeah, exactly. But I guess people still think about this question. And I guess if we just focus on what people are telling us, focus on their message. Mm hmm. The fact that they're worried, they're concerned, but I mean, because they have kids, very personal reasons to be out there. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, they're also hopeful that they can make a powerful impact. Yeah. Yeah, I would just add to that that mm -hmm. it's much easier to communicate fear and to communicate something that will scare people and make them feel paralyzed. But it's much harder to communicate something hopeful and yet that doesn't make people feel like they don't need to get involved. Exactly. Still sounding alarming. Yeah. But also action oriented, I guess. Yeah. But I guess we have been successful 
when it comes to this kind of messaging. And I think this kind of mobilization will also help the nonviolent civil disobedience movements like Extinction Rebellion, because mm-hmm. time and time again, we, we, I mean, we always see that the system is not going to change itself. The people in powerful positions won't do anything that'll mm-hmm. jeopardize that power and influence that they have. So then who's going to even attempt to rebel? It's regular people like yeah. you and me and the ones that take part in these nonviolent civil disobedience movements or protests. And I also think that it's good that we have organizations like Extinction Rebellion because we need also a structure to keep this mobilization going. Because in recent history, we had many civil disobedience attempts and movements, which eventually faded away because even before they were able to complete their mission, because we just couldn't get to keep them going without a structure. Yeah. Like Occupy Wall Street, all of these. Exactly. Exactly. They didn't have very clear aims always as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. This is very specific. And this makes me think that there's quite a lot of hope for Belgium, just because this comes on the back of this amazing green wave that happened in Belgium in October, where the Greens just swept in and did so well and even came first and second in so many cities. Exactly. So if we've got this movement on the streets and all these new people working inside the corridors of power, that that's quite hopeful. Absolutely. We have the grassroots people's movements, and now we have people like them holding powerful positions. Yeah. Official positions. Yeah, and their hand is strengthened by the fact that, you know, if they're trying to convince other politicians, you know, they can point to what's happening on the streets and say, look, this is this is not just us because we're Greens. This is a popular movement. This is what people want. That's public opinion. Yeah, exactly. It backs them up. Yeah. And um, now that we've talked about Extinction Rebellion, they have a great YouTube channel that has workshops and conversation on these topics so it's a great resource you can you should totally check them out check them out okay so these marches are also important because even though the direct impact of these marches on national belgian politics could be and i think will be very small Mm. because the country is basically led by like a caretaker government but i think the the demonstrations will push the issue of climate change up the agenda as this is a very critical time in which the parties prepare for national and European elections in May. Right. So it is a great time to talk about and just hold weekly protests. Yeah. Push this up the agenda. Exactly. And, and you, you talked about public opinion and how we can see that, at least in Belgium, people are getting more and more aware of climate change and its its implications. And, and it's a very pragmatic way of thinking, but most of these activists on the streets, especially the ones on that are on the streets on Thursdays, they're from all ages, but most of them cannot vote right now because of their age. Mm. But when you think about it, they're growing up with these values and by fighting the fight on the streets. And eventually... They're going to grow up and they're going to be able to vote Mm -hmm. and they will probably vote for like green and progressive causes. 
Yeah. Which makes me really hopeful for the future elections. Yeah, sure. It's politicizing young people, I guess, as well. The whole process of being in a march, being surrounded by people, feeling empowered, mm -hmm. feeling like you have a voice and like you're a part of the process. Yeah, yeah, that, that's empowering. Hopefully people will go and, and do more from this. Maybe get involved with politics in some way. Exactly. I mean, even this is being involved in politics. Yeah. You are a part of the process. You're not only a part of democracy and that system only when it comes to elections and you just go and mm. vote and then go back home and just watch some TV. Yeah, it's not just vote every four years and that's democracy. That's it. So more good news after this, these climate marches. It's good news from Sweden. If you remember, we talked about The recent elections in Sweden in our episode last year in October, they took place in September. And yep, parties have been negotiating ever since. They only just created a government. Yeah, longest negotiation in history for Sweden, 131 days. And uh, the main takeaway, before the election, it was a red-green coalition government between the Green Party and the Social Democrats. And now it's their back. It's the same. The Green Party is back in government with the Social Democrats. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Arca cheering. Well done, Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the same, but now they're a minority government. They have fewer seats together than they did before. And now it's a four-party deal. So they had to work really hard to get the support of the centre and liberal parties to support their government. So in exchange, they've offered a lot of political concessions to them, such as about tax and other things like that. Mm. I'll link to an article by a Swedish Green MEP who explains more about this. And um, yeah, the last time we covered this, we were talking a lot about the Sweden Democrats, the far-right group with Nazi roots who dominated the media so much in the run-up to the election. So interesting. And despite dominating and coming third, they've lost a lot of power in Sweden, especially around creating a hype in the media. Can I just quickly say, I guess as it's either as a result of that or them losing power as a result of this. I don't know. But I just read an article that said, you know, how they campaigned on a platform of Swexit, Sweden, getting out of the EU. They just silently changed their position on that the Swedish Democrats. Yeah. They just want to change the EU within internally. So they don't want to leave the EU anymore. And I was thinking, oh, they're probably seeing what's happening in the EU UK right now. Oh, <laughs> and that's exactly what I exactly, thought. And they just probably went, uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. That is not. We'll what... take the hit for you guys. <laughs> just watch what's happening here. Exactly. Take this one for the team, but no. Yeah. Thanks to Brexit. You guys are going to be fine. Thank you, Britt. <laughs> We're fucked, though. We appreciate you. Yeah. You're going to have to be extra nice to us when we come on holiday in Europe because we're going to be poor <laughs> and sad. <laughs> But yeah, I also heard that, that they abandoned this policy they had, which was actually like quite central to their campaign, even though they're so like, immigration focused, right? Exactly. For sure. And so now in Sweden, there's not a single anti-EU party in parliament. Yes. Which is quite significant. They were part of the reason why the negotiations took so long, because all major parties had made a promise not to enter into coalition with them because of their quite shady far-right mm -hmm. origins and rhetoric. 
But despite this, they did influence the debates in Sweden and immigration was far more important. But despite this, we've got this new government, which has really been built on the back of a lot of negotiating, diplomacy, a lot of working across the political spectrum in a very European way from the perspective of a Brit mm-hmm. who's not used to a system where you have parties have to work together. To and like talk to each other. Yeah, yeah and actually yeah. talk. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very healthy and it's kind of it's also a really nice balance compared to Hugh Corbyn and Theresa May <laughs> screaming at each other. Yeah. Just yelling at exactly. each other. What's happened now is that this government, because it joins parties with quite different political agendas, is more directionless than previous governments, which is a critique. But mm-hmm. in a way that's more democratic, that's more representative of what we want. Exactly. And we don't know what's going to happen, how they're going to operate and function. Maybe they'll make it work somehow. Yeah, and it seems like all parties have achieved many of their aims. So the Greens, the Greens now have five ministers, and they also have the deputy prime minister Isabella Löfven, mm. who was deputy prime minister before, and she's back alongside Stefan Löfven, who's come back as prime minister, who's a social democrat. And yeah, so they have five ministers, and they've also achieved many of their priorities. You know that they wanted to get the government to agree on such as lots of transport reforms, about increasing high-speed rail between the country's three largest cities, um, reinstating the flight tax, Mm -hmm. adding more incentives for electric vehicles, for example. And they also expanded the right to family unification for asylum seekers in Sweden, which is kind of an achievement considering that Mm. other parties within the coalition are not so pro-migration as they are. Yeah. But one thing... Before we finish about Sweden that I want to highlight, which is very refreshing, is the fact that having these Greens in government in Sweden is going to have a huge impact internationally because they have this self-proclaimed feminist foreign policy. Mm, Yes. Right. Feminism. (laughs) Love it. And it's feminist because it considers women's empowerment and gender equality more widely as key to security. I think this is extremely significant. Misogyny is a key part of these new authoritarians that are shaping global politics. Reversing women's rights is a key part of Rodrigo Duterte's agenda in the Philippines, Trump in the US, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil. So this is a perfect antidote to the general direction of current global politics. Yes. So this feminist foreign policy is the opposite of the new authoritarianism that we're seeing spread across the globe in content and in shape as well. And this is because gender is so important to everything. And it's not a side issue that we can ignore or that we can leave till later when other changes have been made, but it's key to any kind of change in a positive direction. Because there's there's a gender aspect to everything. Exactly. And at every level as well, Mm -hmm. from the local to the global And that's because the personal is political, as the feminist mantra goes. Ah, here we go. (laughs) I did this interview. Okay, cue massive name drop. (laughs) (laughs) Shameless plug. Yeah, shameless. I did this interview with Gloria Steinem when I was at the Green European Journal. And uh, she made this point about the personal being political in such an interesting way. And she's really amazing. You should check her out. Love her. And she talks a lot about how racism and women's rights is really intertwined. And she explained it like this, right? So if you see a hierarchy in your home when you're growing up 
if that's what you absorb as normal all your life, then that's what you expect and that's what you recreate in the rest of your life and in the world around you. And you start seeing the world as a hierarchy. You know, at home you saw one person talked, the other listened. One person made decisions, the other person obeyed. One person was head of the house, the other person had less power. One person cooked, the other ate. You know, this is black and white, but it doesn't have to be this black and white all the time for you to internalize something huge about women and men Mm -hmm. and also about hierarchies in general. And we don't have that kind of a black and white view of gender and norms in today's society. No. The the lines are more blurred now. They're very blurred and they're very Mm -hmm. deep within us as well. And over them are layers of conscious thoughts and beliefs that might contradict that. But still deep down, we have this, this idea, depending on what kind of home you grew up in as Mm -hmm. well, about the world and about not only gender hierarchy, but all hierarchies, because that's how you see the world is more hierarchical. And so for you, it's profoundly normal and probably even comforting, you know, men over women, humans dominating nature, white people over black people, rich over poor, you know, each hierarchy reinforces the others, Mm -hmm. according to Gloria Steinem. And that's why she says we have to be linked and not ranked. And that that's what feminism does is, is teach us that we're linked side by side and not ranked one above the other. And especially when it comes to foreign policy, mm-hmm. because when you look at it in, on a wider scale, that could be the area that we have the least feminist policies in the world. Yeah, because the security field or just foreign policy in general has been dominated by men Mm. so they never and of course they never brought that feminist perspective into the table (laughs) wrong crowd wrong expectations and that's why it's so important like you said that sweden can have a feminist foreign policy absolutely and then we can witness what that can do to how they're going to operate in that field Mm. absolutely and an interesting way as well as of looking into why women aren't, aren't that dominant in this field is also the fact that if you have this really internalized view of hierarchies that also informs how you feel about the world more generally and about, you know, some countries over others as well, you also probably are not used to seeing as many female leaders mm-hmm. and you're less comfortable with female leaders. So you don't trust them. And when it comes to foreign policy and security... You want to feel safe yeah, and you want to trust that leader. And even that policy proposal that someone just came up with, Mm -hmm. if it's a bit feminist, then that's not going to make some people feel secure. Gloria Steinem has something interesting to say about this as well, which is that we will never progress until there's more equality and who brings up children. Because the reason that it feels threatening and wrong when there's a woman leader Mm-hmm. Why that feels very uncomfortable is that it's infantilizing. It brings us back to the sense of powerlessness of when we were children, because that's the only time in our lives that women have power over us, mm-hmm. our mum, where they have all the power. That's the only time when it's not men in charge. What I'm trying to say is that when you have a woman leading, such as Isabella Löwen in Sweden, and it's a feminist foreign policy, what you're doing is countering new authoritarianism, And people like Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin, you're countering them on so many levels. And especially when it comes to misogyny. Exactly. And 
I want to take this opportunity just to recommend everyone this amazing article in The Atlantic by Peter Beinart called The New Authoritarian's War on Women. It'll be in the description, the link. It's so brilliant because all these authoritarians, they are men. They are all men. This is what unites them. And the main movements that resist them, you know, the green movement, the indigenous rights movement, women's rights movement, they're dominated by women. And the governments that resist them, such as Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand or, you know, the Swedish government with Isabella Leuven at the helm, they're dominated by women. So gender is at the heart of the global political struggle right now. So the green we're going to celebrate in this episode is the person we just talked about, actually, Swedish Deputy Prime Minister for the Green Party, Isabella Löfven. Löfven spent 20 years as a journalist in Sweden, writing about the environment and culture. Writing for a food magazine, she came across the issue of cod in the Baltic Sea. Was it okay to include it in recipes? She discovered that scientists agreed that it was endangered, and after finding out that in Canada, the world's largest cod supply was depleted and has never recovered, she started investigating fishing and overfishing, especially in the Baltic Sea. And the more she dug, the more she was shocked by what she found and how little was being done about overfishing in Sweden and around the world. In 2007, her research culminated in the award-winning book, Silent Seas, The Fishing Race to the Bottom. The Swedish Greens then invited her to be their European election candidate in the 2009 European elections. She got elected, and once in Parliament, she was the main instigator in 2013 of a historic EU law about overfishing around the world and protecting our seas. Her interest in fishing and in ocean health has been a key part of her politics, as has been the intersection between social justice and development and the environment. As well as being Deputy Prime Minister, she is the Minister for Environment and Climate in Sweden. And the balance that she achieves between radicalism and making structural change happen, and being pragmatic and reasonable and calm, is brilliant. Check out an interview with her, we'll put in the description box below. For now, we'll leave you with her opening speech at the UN's Ocean Conference Preparatory Meeting in New York in 2017. Friends, imagine planet Earth without water. Without water, no life. No blue, no green. These are the words of a woman that I deeply admire, marine biologist Sylvia Earle, Esteemed Sylvia Earle often points out that when astronomers are looking for signs of life in space, they look for one thing, and that is water. In a cold, black, infinite universe, dotted with black holes and red desert planets, our living blue planet is a spectacular exception. Almost all astronauts who have seen the planet from space who have seen how this blue planet hangs there in the black emptiness, they have undergone an emotional fundamental change, a phenomenon that has been dubbed the overview effect. National boundaries are not visible from space. And it's quite obvious that there's just one planet Earth 
and that it is alive, and that we all belong there together. The American environmentalist Aldo Leopold once said that it's impossible to engage and have an ethical approach to something that you don't feel anything for. And also that it's impossible to feel anything for something you don't know about. And I believe this is one of the reasons for the decline of our ocean. People have not known about it. Or they have not understood the extent of the damage we have caused our ocean by all the combined pressures, overfishing, pollution, plastic debris, eutrophication, destruction of coastal ecosystems and climate change. But now we can no longer say that we don't know. Now we must engage, now we must act. I'm an optimist when it comes to the world's ability to solve crises. I'm an optimist because I know that change is possible. I've seen it through my political life many times. I know that we are capable of it when we're working together. This year, for example, the historic protection of the Ross Sea in the Antarctica, sometimes called the Lost Ocean, will come into force. The Ross Sea is probably the least altered, most pristine marine ecosystem on Earth. It's a wild place, a kingdom of wildlife with emperor penguins, leopard seals, minke whales, and killer whales. It's one of those rare places where humans are only visitors and large animals rule. I think the protection of this area shows that the world can successfully cooperate in saving our ocean, and we need to celebrate it. But one-off achievements in protecting the ocean will not be enough. We need to incorporate ocean health into all our plans for economic and social development. The two issues cannot be separated, and by now we know that. Today is a celebration for this vision, a celebration of the, the vision that the ocean gives us life and that we all depend upon it. And it's now my pleasure to declare this World Ocean Day celebration open. Thank you. All right, folks, that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at BigGreenPawPod. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear it every two weeks. You can find us on any podcast platform. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating overview. It helps people find the show. And lastly, if you want to give us feedback, email us at biggreenpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much and see you in two weeks.